This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. According to Matthew Sweezy, we no longer live in a world where traditional marketing efforts will pay off in big ways. Instead, marketers need to realize that the entire environment they are working in has changed, and therefore, the marketing game they are playing has changed as well. It's this entire idea that Matthew has written about in his new book, The Context Marketing Revolution. And on this episode of Marketing Trends, he discusses all the things you can learn if you pick up a copy. Enjoy the conversation. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Here is your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends, and we are joined. Special guest, author, just all around amazing guy, Matthew, what's going on? Hey, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So lots of uh, interesting things um, that we'll talk about today. You have a new book out, The Context Marketing Revolution. This is super exciting. I can't wait to talk about it. Uh, we're going to get into a bunch of that. We're going to talk about you were an early employee at, at Pardot, who obviously hosts this podcast and we love. Uh, so we'll do a little stories about that and uh, and talk about your current role at Salesforce. But first, how did you get into marketing in the first place? Maybe some of us on this uh, listening in are the same as me, but I just kind of always loved it. Um, and so kind of sought it out, um, you know, started companies since I was a, a young person uh, and always kind of enjoyed that aspect. Oddly enough, I don't have a degree in marketing. I actually have an agricultural degree. Um, so to get into marketing, I just kind of had to just market myself and, and kind of get my way in the door. Um, but yeah, that's kind of how I got started. So flash forward to today. Um, tell me a little bit about your role at Salesforce. Yeah, so I'm director of market strategy. Um, I'm focused on the future of marketing specifically. So do a lot of research, work with our research teams to help conduct the research to really figure out what it kind of looks like, um, bring those messages out to the marketplace, work with large brands to kind of help them see what their future looks like, uh, both near term and far term. Um, and then as well as write. So write for a bunch of different publications, uh, Forbes, um, this book being published by Harvard Business. Um, so that's kind of a two cents of what I do. And you also wrote Marketing Automation for Dummies. Is that right? Yeah, I was, I was, it was seven years ago now. That's, a, that's unbelievable. Uh, how, much of it, how much of it do you think still holds up? I'd say the whole thing. Uh, so the, the big difference is when I wrote that, the number one problem and still the number one problem people have with, with automation is they don't understand that it uh, opens the door for new possibilities. So they simply buy a tool and then automate the things that they've been doing rather than saying, hey, let's look at the new possibilities that we could do um, and then go do those things. And so that's pretty much what I spent the entire book doing was helping people understand new ways to think about um, what they are trying to accomplish um, rather than just saying, here's how you use a tool. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Well, I mean, like the tools obviously change. There's great tools like like Pardot, um, but the tools will always change, uh, and the mindset um, might shift. Have you kind of found your your mindset shifting over the years? Uh, yeah, I mean, anytime you come across new data, anytime you see new stories that that really kind of challenge your thoughts, ideas, or opinions, you. you you know, you either one have to just say, oh, that doesn't apply to me and move on or two, like, you know, open your eyes and say, hey, the world's changing. I should probably change with it. Um, so, you know, I've definitely changed a lot of my ideas. Uh, and I think being an early pioneer in the automation space really kind of opened my eyes to a much broader um, world and really gave me a glimpse into the future very early. Uh, and it's just continued to play out. Let's get into the book. Um the Context Marketing Revolution. I am super excited. I have not read it yet. I'm going to read along with our listeners who should uh, go check it out. We'll, we'll link it up in the show notes. Um, this is something that I am super excited to talk to you about. Uh, you talk about a bunch of different things in the book that I'm are little passion projects of mine and stuff we talk about a lot on the show. One of those 
you talk about infinite media era. What is this? In the book, we're really talking about a whole new idea of marketing. Really, let's take, a, let's take the idea that we believe marketing is. Let's, let's understand why we think that's the case and then ask the question, is that still the right thing to be doing? Um, and so to answer that, you really have to get deep into this concept of media theory, right? So I'm a big media theorist. Um, if anyone on the, the, anyone listening is a fan of Marshall McLuhan, I actually was able to work with his son and grandson on this book. If you don't know who Marshall McLuhan is, he's one of the godfathers of what we call media theory. So this idea of media theory, just think about air, right? Think about the air around us in our, our physical environment. If the mix of oxygen and other gases in the air changes, all living creatures are going to have to change or they die, right? It's this concept of environments are extremely powerful things. We often don't think of media as an environment, right? We just see it as, as a book on the shelf or, or the magazine on the table or, or the Instagram feed in our hands. We don't realize that the things that we think and how we act are direct correlation and directly results of the media environment, right? The, the idea that we have of love is a direct representation of how we've seen love being demonstrated through those different mediums, right? So if something in the environment changes, men change. And, and this is what's so critical of why I had to start in this place, right? When we talk about context, we're not just talking about how do you apply context to the existing idea that you have of marketing. No, I'm saying the, the idea that you have of marketing that is a specific game that was created to be played in a very specific media environment. That was the limited media environment. Now we live in the infinite media environment, which is a completely different concept. And really think about this in really three simple ways. We define a, a media environment by three things, creation, distribution, and access. In the limited media environment, it was very hard to create media. In fact, my father and grandfather were both print shop teachers. And anyone that's been in the advertising game, well, if you were in the advertising game in the 70s and 80s, you still physically had to create these things. Digital things didn't exist. So it was very expensive, right? There was a barrier to creation, meaning very few people could create. And who were those people that had the money? Well, those were brands and businesses. We then go to distribution. We didn't have to distribute this media. Well, we had to go through a pre-existing distribution network. You had to go buy radio time. You had to go buy airtime on the television or, or a spot in a magazine. And then there was the access, right? All of this was an analog type. And so it was very hard to recall. Now, we need to understand why this is important because human decision-making is based upon information. And when information only is of one type and is very hard to access, people make decisions in a very specific way. And we, in response play very specific marketing games. So we would play games such as to be top of mind, right? We would play games and we would use attention-seeking methodology. So we would believe that sex sells, right? So these are the ideas that we would, would create and we'd play. And that was a very specific role marketing had. Now we live in the infinite media era. And what that means is there is no bounds to the creation of media. In fact, there are more people on the planet with access to a cell phone than have access to clean drinking water or electricity, and each one of those devices can create media. It can distribute it to anyone anywhere in the world instantaneously without a cord, and then it can access the infinite amount of media in a fraction of a second. And why that's so critical, again, is because it changes decision-making processes, and it changes the very foundation of the relationship that brands can have with consumers, and more importantly, it put consumers in charge of the modern media environment. And the new ground where the old game was all grounded on attention. The new ground is all grounded on context. And we can talk about that in a little bit more. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I um, recently, uh, I've, I've gotten more into fishing. And there's this one uh, kind of like fishing blog post that got super popular. And uh, I thought it was so interesting. So this person wrote a really good, basically like deep dive into fishing for this one kind of fish, basically. And uh since then, this was, I think, in December. Since then, there's been like 250 comments on this thread that are all these people updating in real time, like where like good areas to catch fish might be, uh, essentially. And I was just thinking, I'm like, this is such like, this is like a marketer's dream, right? Is that you create a foundation for something in which other people can then engage with anywhere in the world and then, you know, update the content about this 
and provide more value and create like a little thing. And now people on this blog post are like meeting each other in real life. Like, hey, did I run into you at the pier and like all this sort of stuff? And I totally agree with you that, you know, if things like, and I use this example to kind of paint the picture that like there is all of these outcomes that marketers want to have around their products or their services or all these things, you rarely happen. Uh, and we're not intentional enough about like how we view the thing because we're so kind of entrenched in the old way of thinking into the old way of thinking about ads into thinking about like limited resources, uh, or like, you know, um, all of those type of things when the environment is completely different now. Um, and I just, I, I, I love, I love the idea of infinite media. I think it's completely true. And the other piece is that it's global that, I mean, you touch on it a little bit, but the idea that, um, anyone can consume it means that all of the, you know, natural, um, barriers to these things, I guess not everyone, if you have like, you know, websites that are blocked in the country that you live in. But I mean, we have like, you know, listeners from like a hundred and 38 countries or something like that to marketing trends. Like how cool is that? Yeah. And, and the most important thing is, is not just like that there's more, right? This is a new environment, right? And so it's a new game that we have to learn and we have to learn how to play because consumers have adapted, right? So let's just go take some of those old, you know, foundational bedrocks of marketing logic and, and just demolish them, right? The easiest one is, you know, to be top of mind to my response is top of what mind, right? Can you tell me your spouse's telephone number? It's a simple question. We, 10 years ago, the answer would have been, yes, everyone knows multiple people's telephone numbers. My best friend, everyone's. I don't know anyone's telephone number. I can't even tell you my parents' telephone number because they moved houses five years ago. And when they moved, I just put the new telephone number into my cell phone. And when I want to call them, I just say, call mom and dad. And it calls them. I, jo- I joke about that we all the time uh, because um, <laughs> the only way to remember your spouse's uh, cell phone number is like when you use it for rewards points at the grocery store, <laughs> that's the only time you ever use it. It's the only time. Um, and, and why that's important is because now how we make decisions in the game that we thought about marketing could play in and what our focus was, the old focus was, listen, we're going to make something so amazing and so jaw dropping that you're going to stop doing what you were normally doing. You're going to pay attention to this and then it's going to drive you to go do the action or thing that we want. But now let's put that, idea against how modern consumers operate given the new environment, right? And this used to be the idea of, it was just took one thing, one amazing, creative, beautiful thing to get people to do what we want. And that's just not how it happens, right? Now, contrast that with, let's just take the lowest, you know, mundane item I can think of, which is a toothbrush. Let's look how people buy toothbrushes, right? We used to walk into a store and stare at different things and buy, you know, decide from the different packaging, which one we'd like to buy. Or we'd rack our brain and say, hey, I know Colgate. I'll buy a Colgate brush. It's brand recognition. But now what we find is people pull out their phone and simply ask, best toothbrush, right? The search term for best toothbrush, not best electric toothbrush, not best, whatever, best cheap ass toothbrush is growing at a hundred percent year over year, right? Why is that the case? Because that's what people trust. The answer that Google gives them is one contextual, hence get the idea of why it's a context revolution, because it's taking into account who you are, where you are, all the different uh, metadata, right? Then it gives you a result that's specific that only you see. Everyone sees a different answer when they ask that question. And then what, not only is it one question, but that search lasts 70 seconds and goes across four different websites. There's a journey for people to buy a toothbrush. And so that idea of top of mind is superseded by share of journey, right? And so that's why these things are important is because how people make decisions and then the games that marketing now must play within them. Do you think that, well, so I guess let's go more into the context piece. Um, is this something that people are already doing now successfully? Is it something, I mean, obviously some people are, um, is it something that a lot of people are missing? Like, where do you feel like we are in kind of, if, if there's a revolution, a context marketing revolution happening right now, um, you know, are we in the, uh, uh, Sam Adams running around, uh, telling people the British are coming, where are we at in the, in the revolution? Yeah. So the easiest way to answer that is, is to kind of point you to some research that I've done over the past four years. Um, so over the past four years, I've worked with the team at Salesforce to be able to identify what are the key differences between high-performing marketing organizations and everyone else. 
the number one key differentiator between a high performer and an underperformer, right? If I ask, you know, well, anytime I'm on stage, I always like to see what people think they might be, what the answers might be. And you get all kinds, right? Better technology. Um, they've got, you know, be better this. They, they follow this person, better strategy, better tactics. No. Currently, the difference, and it's a resounding difference, uh, high performers are 10 times more likely to be significantly beating their direct competition. The difference is that they have executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing, where marketing is, is the owner and sustainer of all experiences, not the creator of messages, right? It plays a different game. It's a different structure. It's a different role, scope, and function. And so, yes, there are lots of people, there are high performers that are doing it. And they're doing it in different ways at different levels. Um, and so, you know, context, there's a lots of different aspects to it. Um, but really, when we start to break it down, there are a couple of key things. And, and one of the key things is to think differently about just the basic role and scope of marketing. All right, so let me give you one of my favorite examples. This is on a macro scale, right? So take this concept on a macro scale. And let's look at Tesla versus Benz, right? Tesla is 100% a contextual marketing organization, right? So let's put the two side by side, right? One company's, you know, 90 something years old. The other company's, I think, 13 or 14 years old, right? Mercedes-Benz current market cap as of yesterday was 45 billion. Yesterday's Tesla's market cap, 150 billion, right? Now let's talk about specifically unit by unit. Most comparable car Mercedes makes is the C-Class to the Tesla Model 3. Now advertising costs, Mercedes spends $926 per car. Tesla spends six. That is one 150th of the advertising. Now, what did they get for that? Well, Mercedes-Benz sold 86,000 cars in 2017 of the Model C class. That same year, before they'd ever even made the car, before they'd ever even made an economy car, right? Tesla sold 276,000 of them. That's three times as many with the car not even existing. Now, if we go one step lower and we say, well, then what is the business model that these two brands follow? Well, the business model for Mercedes is they build a car, marketing's function is to tell the world about that car, and then they sell that car. Tesla operates completely differently with a different business model and a different idea of marketing. They start by working with the marketplace, right? They have a conversation with the marketplace and say, hey, listen, we have a goal, it's purpose-driven. We wanna get the world off of fossil fuels, and we're gonna do that via radical innovation, right? They then continue that conversation all the way through. So they start with market. Next, they go to sell. They say, hey, listen, it's going to take us a lot of time and a lot of resources to do this. And we just don't have that money. But if you go ahead and pre-order these cars, we'll have enough money to build that innovation. And we'll do it at a small scale. And then we'll learn and we'll do it again on a, on a grander scale and a grander scale. And then eventually we're going to get to the goal of getting mass transportation at an affordable price electric. Right? So they worked with the market. So they market, then they sold, then they built the car after they'd already sold it. And then they continue to market through an amazing experience. If you've ever talked with anyone that's bought a Tesla, it is so different about buying a car than buying a traditional car. It's insane, right? So it's a completely different role, a completely different scope, a completely different focus with a radically different outcome. Why? Because they're made for the modern era, right? Remember, we talked about games being played in the environment. It's the same game Mercedes has been playing for the last 89 years. Now, they were the number one luxury car manufacturer in the limited era and all the way up until 2017. But now who's the number one luxury car manufacturer? Tesla. And Elon has been notorious for how he approaches marketing, marketing dollars, not buying advertising, all of those things. Funny enough, uh, I, you don't know this, but... Uh, my first sale of my life was a print ad to Tesla. Um, and they notoriously don't do print ads. Um, so I'll tell you the story some other time. But um, yeah, it's uh, he's he's maniacal about that stuff, about the type of uh, things that they're doing for marketing spend. Yeah, it works. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, but like they, I don't know what their actual spend would be. I'd be curious. I don't know if you want, you probably can't say, but... Uh, if you know anyways, but um, the amount that they actually spend on like traditional marketing activities is significantly lower uh, than any of their competitors. Well, they don't do traditional marketing. That's the whole point it is it, the concept isn't the, the, the last word in the title of the book is revolution. And that was a highly debated word among a few of my very esteemed colleagues. And some of the people said, listen, it's, it's an overused word and it is an overused word. But 
you know, the publisher at Harvard, as well as many of my other colleagues felt that we were able to prove that this is a revolution in time, right? This is not, let's take old marketing ideas and move them forward and just tweak them a little bit, right? That's the whole point of understanding that the shift in media environment, it's not an evolution. This is a radically new world, right? Operating on a radically new grounds, requiring radically different games to be played. Um, and so that's kind of what the, the underlying foundation is. If you, you take this even further and you say, well, now what is possible? It's, it's not marketing anymore, Everything is going to be marketing, right? There's a new, you know, new studies talking about, you know, decentralization of marketing, right? If we're talking about marketing having to move across the entire organization of all experiences, right, where brand is now the sum of all experiences, we run into a very big marketing problem, right? How do we get marketing's budget, one, large enough to do that? And two, then how do we actually do it? And the answer is, it's not possible. What we're going to find is that we're going to have to train other people to be citizen marketers, right? We're not going to sit on top of service and we're not going to sit on top of sales and direct everything they do. Rather, they're going to be part marketers themselves, right? And the term citizen is a, is a term that is essentially pulled from what happens when artificial intelligence enables a, a nascent individual to be the same as a highly skilled professional, right? So data scientists traditionally, right? A citizen analyst is someone who is a normal individual or employee empowered with artificial intelligence and the correct tools, able to do about 90% of the same work that a highly skilled, highly trained data scientist would be able to do. Right? So that's what we're going to start to see is citizen marketers all the way across the organization. Um, that's, that's one way we're going to look at it. Another is just the basic idea of what marketing is going to be trying to do. They're no longer going to be trying to sit there and come up with the best messaging and the best you know, way to get people to convert. Now they're going to start working with their market right, to help their market and get their market to help move these things forward, right? You can look at any influencer campaign, right? Adidas, um, Daniel Wellington, right? What made them successful isn't that they got an Instagram influencer to, to tell them, you know, to put, you know, promote out there with the biggest reach of traditional logic of, you know, the greater the reach, that's how we scale this message. Instead, companies like Daniel Wellington, what they did was they have a constant program of finding nano influencers and it's a constant, constant evolution and a constant grind of working with these people on a small scale of getting those messages out. Right? It's a constant effort with not on. And you can look at that at any other time. Oreo, right? they decided that they wanted to keep their 100-year-old cookie brand. They're the oldest cookie brand in the world and they wanted to stay relevant. How did they do it? Well, there's two ways you could have thought about it. One is you could say, hey, listen, let's sit in our room. Let's brainstorm up the best ideas we can come up with. Then let's come up with the most creative way and the best commercials to push these out into the world. Right? That's the old game. The new game is to say, hey, listen, let's listen to our market. And what the market said is, hey, we love to come up with crazy Oreo flavors all the time just for fun. They said, well, if you want to do that for fun, well, let's make a game out of it. And they created the My Oreo Creation Campaign, which essentially said, hey, listen, you tell us the craziest flavors that you want. And hundreds of thousands of submissions came in. They engaged with every one of those submissions. A lot of them, they actually went as far as creating the cookie as a one-off cookie, literally just like one cookie, made it that flavor, and then sent it to the individual, uh, right? And so what you saw was then by the time they get to the new flavors, they end up with three. I think it was kettle corn, cherry cola, and pina colada, right? There's built-in demand in the market because you're not having to force something onto someone. It's their idea to do it in the first place, making it a much easier sell with built-in demand. Um, and then the market helped get the message out there in the first place because every one of those suggestions, those are all in the ether of all of their contextual environments with their friends, right? So it's, it's a radically different idea uh, and different game we must play. We always talk about the, you know, the Henry Ford, if, if I had listened to everyone, I would have built a faster horse. Um, how... How do you kind of see marketers playing the go-between where to evangelize and create products that people don't realize they need now versus fulfilling kind of those needs in, in real time? And that's a super tough question, right? You could also have thrown, um, you know, uh, uh, my brain just kind of stopped. Apple CEO, Steve Jobs, you know, he, he said, if, you know, if you ask the customer what they want, I don't remember what the exact quote was, but you know, you're never going to come up with anything really truly innovative. Um, so it, that's a really hard thing to answer. 
because it depends on where you are, right? Marketing is not one size fits all. It depends on what game you're trying to play, right? So if you are a new entrant to a market, you have to play one game. If you're a disruptor, you play another game, right? There's different games that marketers have to play based on the scenario that they're in and what they're actually trying to do. Um, but in terms of the go-between, it's just the mindset shift is the biggest thing that they have to think about of how can they just first off start working with people and just think about different ways. But here's a really simple way. Anyone can work with somebody and be the go-between. Let me ask you this simple question. And every marketer that's listening, play this game in your head. I'm going to ask you a simple question. Have you ever picked up the telephone and called anybody after they engaged with a piece of your content to ask them what they thought of that experience? Now, before I tell you what the statistic is, I want to share some research with you. So I asked 400 B2B buyers. I said, have you ever been disappointed with the content you've downloaded from a brand? 71% of people said yes. We all imagine there's bad experiences all the time. What we need to be very understanding of is in a world of infinite media, your content is a commodity. They don't need you. And so I followed up that question to say, to what extent were you disappointed? 25% of those people said they would never engage with that brand ever again right? Opportunity costs. They don't need you in a world of infinite media, right? Now go back to that question. We look at a download and we say, hey, this has been downloaded. That must be great. But we didn't follow up and ask the person, what did they think of that, right? You know how many people do that? Less than 1%. We would fire any product manager who never reached out to their customers to ask them what they think of their product, right? Experience is a product. We have to understand that at the business, at the core level, right? And just simply thinking about reviewing and just simply asking, what is the outcome of this experience? Did it meet your expectation? It's an easy way that anyone can work with their market uh, and kind of really embrace this idea. Well, you know, we had, um, and I forget his name off the top of my head, but we had the CEO of Uber flip on and he was talking about oh, how, yeah, 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 uh, about how, um, you know, the average like corporate tweet gets like four likes. And then he's like, your marketing team is probably bigger than four people. So even your marketing team isn't liking your own stuff. How are you going to expect anyone else to like it? So let's, let's just drill into that one thing, right? By the way, if you ever meet Randy, he's got amazing shoes. I love his shoes. So what we need to think about is drill into that topic, right, of context. And if you understand why people are on social media in the first place, you can meet them in that context. And the four main reasons why people are on social media are, we're talking like deep psychology here, right? One, it's self-projection. I'm going to project the image of myself that I want to be known as, right? That's the number one thing. Why do you post pictures of you? I'm going to assume you post pictures of you with the fish you've caught, right? Because you are a fisherman and it's a part of your identity that you want to be known as. You've already shared a fishing story. Never. I nev never post. <laughs> never, never. Right. And this, the second question is then societal validation. We need validation, right? We've all heard of the dopamine kick that social media gives us on that, that high. That's the, you know, why we keep going back. Well, why do we get that kick in the first place? It's because we're getting validated for the thing that we want to be validated for, right? So those likes that we get are validating us from social validation. Now, the third reason is belonging. We're just social creatures by nature. We need to belong. And this is just an easier way for us to connect and belong. And then the fourth of why do we even like that? Why do we click like in the first place? It's very simple. It's called reciprocity. If I don't click the like button on yours, you're not going to click the like button on mine and I'm not going to get that dopamine, right? So those are the real core values of, of the reasons of why we're there. Now go back to Randy's comment, right? Most corporate social posts are then just taking content from the blog and posting it on there as to saying, hey, we're just going to distribute this message more. Once again, that was an old game that they would have played. Create one message, pump it everywhere. Right? But now we must realize people are on social media for a specific reason. Right? There's, a, there's a company. And this company, has, um, they, they do two things. One is they, first off, they've created this comic series um, called Time Well Spent. And they post once a week, right? this comic to Facebook. Now, they also post their corporate blog posts at the same time. It is a 60x difference between the engagement on those two posts on average, 60x. Why? Because people don't go to social media to read your white paper or your corporate whatever. They're there to escape their job, not, not do their job, right? So let's think about that. You know, it's pretty wild. Um, 
when you think about all of these new channels and how much we kind of just copy and paste strategy from these from other things um you know i remember there was you know a big thing about how you know your facebook strategy is, is needs to be totally different from linkedin needs to be totally different from uh from twitter needs to be totally different from instagram and all their different platforms and blah 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 but then the resounding response from the marketing com- community was like, yeah, great. That's super easy to say. And that's really, really hard to do. Um, I'm curious, what have you seen in terms of taking action in these ways? How to streamline your efforts? How to you know, focus on the things that, you know, the, the 20% of the things that are going to get 80% of the value? Like, how, do, how have you seen people work and do those things? I mean, the, the easiest answer is agile methodology. And if you want to talk about it from a macro scale of like, let's organize and operate in an efficient way, right? So one of the world's largest banks, right? They took their entire marketing team and went agile. And I have a case study with them in the book. And I'm sitting there asking one of the guys, it's like, all right, so if I'm going to tell all these people, all these marketers that, you know, they're supposed to move their, not just their process. I mean, they moved into an agile organizational structure, not just agile workflow. And I was like, you know, I need to be able to say like, there's some data point, like you had X better results, you were X faster. He goes, because we don't really track any of that. He says, you know, what's most important. He says, we are now the most efficient. He goes, we produce the highest value of work per unit of time, period. He says, I go home, I'm not stressed. He goes, I come back excited to work the next day. And that's what we need to be thinking about is how does marketing focus on the things, just like you said, to give them the highest returns right? Not just how do we publish crap everywhere all the time, because that's the game we think we need to be playing. And when it really has no bearing on the results, just like you said, like four, four, four likes on a, on a tweet, you know, who cares? Yeah. I, I always think about um, creating content that is somebody's favorite thing in the whole like world. And I don't mean like, you know, it's not, they don't like it more than their spouse. They don't like it more than, you know, um, their, their dog or something. I mean, your favorite version of whatever it is that 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 they're going to engage with their favorite tv show their favorite comic strip their favorite you know whatever or or maybe not their favorite in terms of you know it it like brings them joy and happiness maybe it's their favorite you know workout or their favorite um or a post that got them promoted in their job or whatever it is um I think that's why events were, were so successful for so long is because it was people's way to get, you know, organized around a topic with people, their peers from all over a geographical, from all over like the US, for example, into one area and then meet a bunch of like-minded people, um, you know, and the internet kind of accentuated that. But you hear people talk about things like Dreamforce or you know, whatever event, um, you know, we were at Serious Decisions and people just glowingly talk about how amazing those experiences were. Um, I'm curious, how do you think experiences play into the context marketing revolution? I mean, that's the whole point. Um, the, the whole foundation is experiences, not messages, right? Marketers have to, to focus on experiences. And, and if your question is more like physical experience, right? Uh, how do we use physical experience? I would say it, it depends, right? That it's wherever on the journey we need to be in context with them. Um, I agree with you. Physical experiences are something that are very powerful for lots of reasons. Um, one, you can meet with lots of people in short order, usually can expedite lots of things. Um, there's also the, the side benefit of if you want to go find out other jobs in your industry, um, it's a very easy place and a safe place to go seek those things out. Um, build connections, build your personal brand. Um, so there's lots of, lots of value in terms of events. Um, and for us, events are a very powerful driver of business, right? We produce one of the largest um, tech events in the world um, and 170,000 people. We literally can't have any more people at the event. Um, it's physically not possible for San Francisco to put any more people in one place at one time. Um, so and it's a massive driver for us. So, so yeah, but also we make sure that there's context we don't just say, hey, come to this event, right? We make sure that people are getting radical value when they come, 
right? There is massive opportunity. There's massive ways to engage in social uh, justice, whether you want to help pack lunches or do some other type of volunteering effort. But there's so many different avenues um, that we work on to make sure that those events are special and contextual. Yeah. And I don't even mean necessarily purely physical experiences. It could be whatever, um, any type of experience. I just think about um, and talk about all the time on the show, like m- marketing is meant to be remarkable, which means you're actually supposed to talk about it with another human being. Like you're supposed to discuss whatever it is that you did or saw or experienced with someone else. Um, you know, people talk about, you know, accelerating word of mouth and things like that, but like truly it's about making something meaningful enough that it impacts someone's life or change the way they thought or, you know, <laughs> amplify the way they thought or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, you talk about in the book, um, the context marketing revolution, which everybody should buy, uh, the five element of context, uh, available, permissioned, personal, authentic, and purposeful. And I just think about, you know, ex- with the with the example of an event, um, it's all of those things, right? That's why people are in the mindset to be open to all of these experiences and all these all these things, which is why they enjoy it so much. The opposite of that, the polar opposite of that is a pre-roll ad or just an ad in general that wastes your time uh, of something that you don't want and didn't really want to see in the first place. Exactly right. And, and the outcomes are radically different. But yeah, so experiences, I mean, we have to take a, a much larger look. So experience isn't a new thing. So let's just start with this concept, right? Experiences, my buddy wrote a book called The Experience Economy. I call him my buddy. I've known him for a while. Um, Joseph Pine, um, you should all read it if you have any experience economy another Harvard author. And so it was 99 when that book came out. We're 20 years post its publication. And that publication essentially said that the highest economic output that a firm can produce is an experience that helps someone transform. And that's, that's business logic that has existed at the highest level for 20 years. So we know this word experience. But then Bain just did a study. And there's lots of studies. But my favorite is this one from Bain. And it's called, they, they call it the delivery gap. And so they say they, they sat down a bunch of companies and they said, listen, we're going to ask you how well you think you are delivering experiences. And then we're going to ask your actual customers what they think. Right? Most of the time when we do these types of surveys, it's not the actual customers from the actual brand. It's just in general. Right? This study found that 80% of businesses believe that they're great at creating experiences. It was 8% of their customers <laughs> would agree. Right? That is a 72% delta between the two. So we, we know experience, we have the word, but we're radically horrible at actually understanding what an experience is and how we deliver it. And I think it comes down to one simple thing. It, marketers are applying the word to their old idea of marketing, right? The old idea was I only need to have one thing that then can, is so amazing it converts them to do whatever I want. And the reality is everything is a journey. Right? We have to make sure that it's not that, and if the experience isn't a part of the journey, it doesn't matter because whatever's found on the journey supersedes anything else. Really good example, PR, right? PR, you don't experience PR in a journey, right? So whatever is found in that journey can supersede whatever conversation is going on at a macro scale in public relations. Yeah, they, they both need to exist, but we also need to think about should public relations own the journey? Should they be monitoring and measuring that journey and ensuring that they're landing articles that help get us, you know, top of journey um, and increase our share of journey? Because that's really what thought leadership is, is if you're answering questions that they're asking in that moment, you are literally leading their thoughts. And if you can do that, you can drive a much, much, much greater demand. And the mathematics are insane, right? So let's say that a journey has four steps, right? This is some easy math. Let's say it's four steps. And if you can simply increase the amount of people that move from stage one to stage two by 1%, from stage two to stage three by 1% and continue for, th- for four stages, as a 40% lift in net revenue just by simply being better at guiding people across a journey by 1%. That's incredible. And I love the concept of journeys and customer journeys um, because it implies the same type of length that a product creator puts into their thought that a marketer would put into. Like, I think that a lot of times, especially if your marketing organization is very salesy, um, you have a lot more short, short term, 
uh, targets and things like that. But thinking about a journey implies like long-term. And it also implies um, that your spend and your re or your allocation of resources or reallocation of resources in some circumstances goes beyond just purchase. And I think that that's another, you know, fundamental shift in thinking, which is like, hey, pay all this money up front for a bunch of TV advertising, then a bunch of sales. And we don't really worry about the customer once they've bought, we're just trying to get them to buy again. Um, I think, again, that's, that's something that the best orgs are spending money post-sale, uh, not necessarily all pre-sale. Oh, yeah. I mean, exactly right. And it's the whole concept of, once again, go back to the number one key differentiator, right? When an organization understands growth as a holistic measure, as the sum of all experiences, they grow so much better and so much faster, right? We talked about a small increase on the front end, right? If you're just more efficient on the front end, 40% increase, right? A 5% reduction in churn is a 25 to 95% increase in profit, right? So just simply a 6% delta in difference is a anywhere from a 65 to 135 increase in profit. And it's all about making sure we just understand that all of the experiences matter. And why do they matter? It's because consumers have ultimate recourse, right? Like they can do whatever they want, leave as easy as they want, go wherever. It's, it's so easy to find a competitor, right? And, and so that's just the world that we live in and how we have to change it and change that notion of experience and how businesses think about growing, right? Marketing's role isn't about stacking, you know, net new customers. Yes, we need new customers, but that's not the only goal that it has. And it, and it succeeds best when we focus on creating contextual experiences across the journey. We always want to think about, you know, the purchase piece of it, um, but not the, you know, what does the person say at month one? What do they say at month six? What do they say at month 12? How do you continue to surprise and delight? Um, and those stories are some of the best uh, from them. I mean, it's funny that like, customer marketing ended up becoming a function of marketing, which is like, should just kind of be part of the whole. Yeah. I mean, that's good. back to the larger conversation of what, how will marketing be able to actually transition as a department? And, and like we said, it, it won't, right. It's, it's going to be, you know, the citizen market are going to have, you know, people are going to be quasi marketers in all different aspects and technology and artificial intelligence will allow the centralized organization of marketing to be able to help keep some control over what they're saying, how they're doing, right. Be able to push, you know, super, you know, excellent things such as, you know, here's the, you know, number one technique you should use for this. And they'll be able to push it to everyone for, for use and for easy deployment. Um, but yeah, but it's, it's totally correct, right. It's, it's across an organization and it's all about the experience. So we are uh, we're coming up on time here. You got a lot of a lot of things to do, a lot of people to talk to. Um, but before we get out of here, and before well, first before we get into our, our our lightning round here, I do have to ask: What's a good story from uh, early Pardot days? What's a good story from early Pardot days? I'll just go with the one that made it uh, that got me on the the front of the business section for the Atlanta journal, um, which then ended up on my grandparents' fridge. Cause it's so hilarious. Um, so we were, a, we were a young startup. Uh, the average age when we were sold, I believe was 25, um, of employees. We were very young, um, very young company in terms of age and growth. Uh, and so we just operated very differently. It was very fun, super fun. Uh, so fun that we had an electric motorcycle in the office. Uh, it was a mini motorcycle, right? So if you remember those little mini motorcycles about the size of a backpack that a full-size human could get on and ride. Um, in the office, we had an entire floor, right? So if you imagine, you know, you've got essentially a giant circle around the entire building. Uh, and that was the track. And so we would, we would race. We would have time trials on the mini motorcycle uh, all around. And the Atlanta Journal came in one day and they have a picture of me uh, racing around on this mini motorcycle. I think about, you know, like my headset, you know, like hanging off my shoulders. I'm in jeans and flip flops, you know, but, but I think that was probably one of my favorite memories is just you know, how much fun we used to have. It was, it was, it was a great time in all of our lives and careers. It was, it was a beautiful business to work for. I love it. We had Adam on and, uh, and he was, he was sharing some pretty good self-deprecating stories, um, as always. And he's just been, uh, was awesome. Um, okay, let's get into our lighting round questions. Fast and easy. 
just like something you know well, marketing automation with Salesforce. And just really, all of our listeners, um, if you haven't checked out Salesforce, go to salesforce.com slash marketing. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM. Um, we love them. You will too. Check them out. Um, lightning round questions. Sweezy, are you ready? I'm ready, man. Let's do it. Number one, what app on your phone is the most fun? Most fun? Hmm. Mm, I'd say the one most associated with fun. I don't, I don't have any games. I don't really, I'm super boring. I'm, I'm pretty Luddite. Um, I don't even own a television, but I think my favorite app and the one I use the most is probably Magic Seaweed, which tells you the wave height and how the waves are breaking and where to go surf. So I, I think that's one that gets me the most excited because when I use it, I know I'm going surfing or maybe not, but I like that one the best. That's a good one. Uh, what about hidden talent or passion? Hidden talent or passion. Um, so my father was a shop teacher. His father was a shop teacher. My mother's father uh, was a carpenter. So I was raised in a wood shop. Um, and when I was 18 years old, I was a nationally ranked woodworker. So I was the number one cabinet maker in Tennessee and 15th in the nation. So that's my, my, my odd talent. That's incredible. That is, that is a great hidden talent uh, and super practical. Do you have, if we were to visit Charleston, second Charleston interview this week, funny enough. Um, if you had one place, if someone was in town for just 24 hours, what should they do in Charleston? Oh, Jesus. So many awesome things to do. Um, I guess I would say if, if you're coming to visit me, I'd take you to one or two places to eat. Um, that would either be Bowen's Island, which is, it's just like this super cool shack out on the marsh. You got to drive away to get to it. And it's, you know, your traditional, like, you know, fried seafood joint, but it's right on the river. You're always seeing dolphins. Um, it's, it's just beautiful. <laughs> or I'd take you to Jack of Cups, which is probably my favorite restaurant in town. It's super funky, super eclectic, um, down on Folly beach. Uh, and it's just this really awesome, little kind of very eclectic curry, vegetarian, some meat, but it's just like a super cool, I mean, tiny spot. Um, so it's usually, I like to take people to like more eclectic, funky places. Um, so that's probably where I'd take you. Favorite animal? Favorite animal. I don't know if I have a favorite animal, but I'm just going to throw this one out there because it's funny and I have a connection with them. But um, we were a farm family and uh, so I helped my grandfather raise goats for many yeah. years. So I'd say... Uh, so I'd say goats are probably my favorite animal. They're, you know, they're the number one eat meat around the world. Yeah, I just didn't know that. They're the first animal domesticated uh, by humans, and they're essentially and they're the cheapest uh, thing to raise on a farm in terms of like output versus. Uh, you know, I don't know anything about farming, but I do know that fact. Yeah, they're 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 fun to raise. Shout out to goats. Okay, uh, what would be your best advice for a first time CMO? Best advice for first time CMO? Oh, geez, that's, I mean, that's an impossible question to answer. How about um, this? First, read the context marketing revolution. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll give you that one. And then uh, what else? Oh, geez, I don't know. Uh, I, I'd say just, you know, be diligent. It's such a tough question to answer because I don't know where the company is, who they are, where they are. Um, I mean, I, I just say do the best you can to think about the role that marketing plays in the organization and make sure you have executive buy-in for a new idea of marketing and at all costs push for that. Um, like I said, the number one key differentiator between the high and low performers is, is that an idea, right? Executive buy-in to a new idea of marketing where marketing is the owner and sustainer of messages and not the creator, or excuse me, the owner and sustainer of experiences, not the creator of messages. So just make sure you, you're able to work on that um, and make sure you've got that buy-in from your executive and then second, just make sure you work with your market rather than on them. What question do you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? What's my favorite book? What is your favorite book? Uh, I've got lots of favorite books. Uh, I think in context of uh, this conversation, a book I think everyone should read would be E.F. Schumacher's Small is Beautiful. Um, so I'm a big believer in... And thinking about things differently, I, I don't believe that capitalism has failed by any stretch. I believe that businesses have the ability to change the world, and that's the best way that we should change the world. Um, if not, we're in like fascist society. Uh, but anyways, I think that that book really puts a solid idea of 
economics as if people matter, right? Let's rethink what's the goal. The goal isn't, you know, the highest economic output. Um, the goal should be, you know, the best and happiest society. Um, so let's focus on economics to kind of help us get there. Um, so stakeholder theory, stuff like that. Love it. Matt, that's all we got, man. That's it. That's, uh, that's the episode. Thanks so much for stopping by. Obviously, listeners, I've, I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times. I'm super excited about this book. Harvard only makes like how many books a year? I mean, this is like a big deal. So you should definitely check it out. 24. They publish 24 a year. Yeah. 24 books a year from, from our good friends um, at Harvard Business. So you got to check it out. Um, Matt, thanks for being generous with your time. Any final thoughts? No, man. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, and if anyone needs me, just feel free to reach out. Sounds good. Take care. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction. Automate engagement with each customer and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.